This morning I'd like to uh, speak a bit more about this practice of what is this that Martin introduced yesterday. And it might be helpful to uh, consider how this might differ or be similar to other forms of uh, inquiry that are found in the Buddhist uh, tradition. Uh, in particular, if you come from a practice such as that of vipassana or, or mindfulness, you will have heard of um, Dhamma Vichaya, which is one of the seven factors of awakening. And it's often translated as uh, investigation into Dhamma or states or things or conditions. And so clearly, um, in this more um, <clears throat> classical practice, there is an element of inquiry or investigation. But I think there's a difference. Um, in that practice, you, 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 you are encouraged to inquire into particular features of your experience, namely impermanence, uh, dukkha, which means the kind of tragic or imperfect uh, quality of experience, and anatta, the, the, the fact that experience is not me or mine, it's not self. And the reason you do that is because these are often elements of experience that we tend to either uh, deny or overlook, or simply just not pay attention to. And so by familiarizing yourself, by investigating your breath, for example, as being transient, as being um, you know, unsatisfactory in some sense, in being not really me or mine, you actually open up that dimension of experience uh, in a way that can help free you from certain um, convictions like things actually are, or at least some things are permanent, like me. Uh, some things are really okay, they're going to last, they're going to give me lasting well being. Uh, and basically, experience is mine. And it's these um, attachments to these kinds of views, and they're not just intellectual opinions that we might hold, but they're deep. Uh, almost instinctive ways of apprehending experience that probably have their origins uh, in our neurobiology, in our having evolved this way. So that's certainly a kind of investigation. But it's an investigation that has already established what the answer to the question is. Is it impermanent? Yes. Is it dukkha? Yes. Is it Anatta, yes. And we seek, therefore, to look deeply into experience such that those uh, features uh, begin to become more pronounced or, or, or present to us, so not just when we meditate, but to inform our overall sensibility of life itself. And I think that that practice is certainly completely compatible with the inquiry into what is this. But I feel that the what is this uh, 
has, is somehow qualitatively of another order. Because even if we fully recognize that things are impermanent and dukkha and anatta, they still remain, uh, in a way, mysterious. In fact, they may even become more mysterious, more strange, uh, when we experience our life as profoundly fluctuating, tragic, impersonal, in a way that reveals or exposes the uh, puzzling fact that it's happening at all, and that it's continuously shifting, changing. There's, a, the, the, there's an element of uh, impersonality involved. And that does not uh, at all answer the question, what is this? If anything, it makes that question all that more poignant, perhaps for some of us all that more urgent. But what is this strange thing called life unfolding tragically, impersonally? What is this? So in some senses we tap into a level of uh, inquiry here. Uh, that doesn't uh, in any way have a foregone conclusion. It's an open question. There is no answer in that sense. And in that way, what we're inquiring into is not something that is problematic, that if we inquire hard enough, we will solve that problem. But what we're inquiring into is something profoundly mysterious. And the difference between a problem and a mystery, at least according to some philosophers, is that a problem can be solved. And once the problem is solved, there is no problem anymore. It's gone. But in terms of a mystery, uh, the more we go into, the more we penetrate the strangeness or the mysteriousness of experience, it doesn't become less mysterious. Arguably, it becomes more mysterious. That this kind of questioning is not interested in arriving at a solution. Because arguably, there is no solution. It's not a problem to be solved. And as one of the questioners asked last night, um, when you start doing this practice, it immediately, automatically, kick-starts a habit of coming up with an answer. In other words, coming up with a solution. As though we want the problem to go away. We want to sort the problem out. And at a certain point, as I suggested last night too, we give up. Because this is not the sort of question for which there are uh, solutions or answers in that sense at all. The point of this questioning is to um, cultivate uh, in an increasingly uh, uh, focused and uh, visceral, bodily way, um, a quality of, of questioning in itself, a quality of, of being perplexed, a quality of wonderment, that as we open ourselves to that, becomes, in a sense, more enhanced, not uh, something that is then resolved. And I think we can perhaps find um, examples of this, not so much in the 
in, for example, the seven factors of enlightenment that we find in the early tradition. Uh, but by looking back more into the origin of the Buddha's own quest um, when he initially left home, and perhaps the, the locus classicus for this experience is found in the legend of the young prince um, leaving the palace, the security and the safety of the palace in which he grew up, going outside the palace walls. All of this is highly symbolic, obviously, because he didn't live in a palace. He wasn't a prince. But the, the myth is still very powerful. Going outside the palace walls, he encounters a sick person, an old person, a corpse, and a samana, a wandering mendicant. And on each occasion, supposedly, this is the first time that he'd ever encountered such things. And he turns to his charioteer and he says, What's that? A corpse, a sick person. And the charioteer tells him, and he says, And that happens to everyone? That, I think, is the kind of questioning that we're doing here. We're actually allowing ourselves uh, to become questions for ourselves. Of course, you know, in reality, the young Prince Siddhartha would have obviously encountered sickness, death, as after all his mother died when he was born, um, old age, his father would be pretty old. It's not as though he's never seen these things before, but he's never really seen them before. He's never really been struck or even overwhelmed by their import. And I think that's probably true for most of us. Um, you know, people die, we go to funerals, and that's part of our life when we grow up. But occasionally, perhaps if it's someone particularly dear to us or a person who has died in the prime of life, uh, it hits home at another pitch. It's not just another ritual we go through, but it actually affects us very deeply and it causes us, inevitably, to reflect on the fact that we too are mortal, that we too are subject to, to illnesses to accidents, and so on. And so it's when that uh, knowledge of sickness, aging, death becomes personalised in a deeply um, embodied way in which it really rattles or shakes us up, that then throws into question everything. And what does it mean to live on this earth if the only certainty is that at one moment, maybe next week, maybe tomorrow, maybe in 20 years, we don't know, but we will be evicted from this place. We, this breathing will stop. It's that kind of question that we are focusing on um, here. But I think we have to introduce a very... Um, uh, somewhat sobering caveat. Because this kind of questioning is not something that you can, as it were, deliberately um, uh, manufacture. I can't say to you, okay, I'm going to count to three, 
And on the count of, and on the three, we're all going to feel the wonder and mystery of life. It doesn't work like that. We could say, on the count of three, I'll start noticing how my breath is changing all the time. Yeah, we can do that. And when we have such experiences, um, they also very often have the quality of being things that happen to us uninvited. They come upon us. We are seized momentarily or for longer by this sense of the sheer strangeness of things, as in the examples I gave last night. So you could argue, and I think it would be quite a, 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 quite a legitimate uh, concern, that just by asking ourselves the question, what is this, what is this, what is this, are we ever going to be open to that sense of mystery and wonder that in its very nature comes unbidden? So, I don't know whether Martin mentioned this yesterday, one of the very important things about this practice is not to ask this question in a repetitive, mechanical way. It's not a mantra. You won't get Buddhist brownie points merit by repeating it more often. In fact, one has, I think, to use this question rather carefully and judiciously. And this is where I think it is very helpful to ground this practice in a basic uh, uh, contemplation of the body, of the breath, of one's mental state. In other words, uh, just a simple mindfulness exercise to ground ourselves physically, become more present, become more alert, allow some of the rather annoyingly repetitive thoughts to die down a bit. And then when we find ourselves in a, in a more still and calm space, then very gently, and perhaps not very often, just voice beneath your breath the question, but what is this? And also to explore in the course of the day or the rest of the week um, how you ask that question, how you pose those words. There's a lot, I think, that comes from the way we intonate uh, that phrase. And we'll all do this probably in our own way. But to try to uh, allow ourselves to find a way of asking what is this uh, that in a sense is open with a certain humility uh, to the sheer um, extendedness of our experience going out all the way to what we hear and see and smell everything deep within us the very brute fact of our being here at all, which I think is definitely opened up by simply paying attention in a quiet, systematic way. But allowing that attention to lead us into a space in which we can begin to wonder. But to wonder in such a way that we're more, in a way, uh, uh, enriched 
by the quality of wonder itself rather than um, it triggering the habit pattern of giving an answer. So in some ways, contemplation, which I prefer really to the word meditation, uh, this contemplative practice, this contemplative life, is somehow finding a kind of conversation between uh, distinct methodologies, be they those of mindfulness or vipassana or other forms of uh, Buddhist or other meditations, um, and Zen to this questioning exercise. Uh, these are methodologies. They're, they're techniques in a way. But as techniques, they are in some manner um, incapable of actually uh, capturing or containing in any way the sheer um, uprush of life itself as it uh, becomes manifest in any given moment. There's a curious mismatch uh, between the actuality of our immediate felt experience that's really rather baffling <coughs> and, and rather um, uh, dumb and, and mute. You know, we sit on the cushion and occasionally we notice that we just feel like a sort of, well, we can't even quite put it into words. There's the body, there's our feelings, there's the breath, all the stuff that gets talked about. But beneath all of that, there's something kind of uh, inarticulate going on that we can't really pin down adequately with words or concepts. And yet it's the most intimate and most real thing that is going on in our life. It's intensely private. It's not something we can really vocalize in a way that can explain it to others. It's where we feel perhaps the most profoundly alone. And yet, we employ strategies, meditative strategies in this case, to somehow come to terms with it, to somehow uh, engage with that. It's perhaps similar to the distinction that is often made uh, between the map and the territory. Um, and I think early Buddhism, or particularly the Indian forms of Buddhism, have developed very intricate and helpful and useful maps. But I feel at times they kind of lose sight of the curious nature of the territory. And again, I feel what I like about Zen, and I think part of the, the rupture in China with Indian Buddhism in its classical sense was a refusal any longer to become so preoccupied with the maps and the strategies and the techniques and just to sit. And I think, arguably, a similar thing occurred to the Buddha. After years of practicing different forms of meditation and other things in the India of his day, uh, he got to the point that none of these things were actually getting him anywhere. They weren't actually addressing what was his core question. What does it mean to be born, to get sick, to grow old, and to die? And so he abandoned the whole lot and just sat, just stopped and sat. So I think the history of Zen, 
the history of Buddhism um, is also, in a, in a sort of macroscopic sense, um, a reflection of perhaps our own history too, where we engage with certain practices and disciplines that have, let's say, beneficial outcomes, but at some point those practices can become routinized, become rather mechanical. We get rather good at them. We get proficient. And in doing so, very often we feel that we've somehow lost something. We've lost perhaps that initial anxiety or uncertainty or confusion and replaced it with you know, convictions, beliefs, confidence in certain approaches and so on. And in this sense, I feel that the kind of inquiry that we do in, in, in uh, what is this is also about a return, a recovery of what it was that brought us to an interest in Buddhism or a spiritual practice in the first place. That initial sense of confusion and uncertainty, maybe a certain suffering, that has somehow gotten forgotten, somehow been forgotten. So it's about coming back, not just coming back to the breath, but coming back uh, to the primacy of our experience here and now. And what is that? I think this is also very well captured in the story that Martin uh, outlined yesterday uh, that gives us the, uh, the, the sort of the, the, the starting point for this whole tradition. And that is the exchange between these two monks, uh, Hui Zhang, who was a younger monk who had travelled from North China all the way down to a monastery near Guangzhou, Canton, to meet the great Zen master uh, Hui Neng. And Hui Zhang is introduced to uh, Hui Neng, the Chan teacher, who asks him, you know, where have you come from? And he says, I've come from Mount Song. And then uh, Huynan asks him, but what is this thing? How did it get here? To which Huayang was speechless. And then the text says, he then spent eight years in the monastery. At the end of which, he came back to Huynan, and Huynan said, what is this? And Huayang said, well, I can't tell you that, can I? That's the answer. Huayang <laughs> said, to say it is like something misses the point. To say it is like something misses the point. Now, in that very typical Zen koan, um, what we find is that the, um, the conversation between these two men starts at the level of conventional discourse. Where have you come from? But at a certain point, uh, that conventional exchange of information um, is, is radically subverted. And Huaynang uh, says, uh, but what is this thing? How did it get here? So he turns the questioning from a questioning about facts and events into a question about, well, who are you really? As it were. And I think we can probably all sense uh, what would occur in such uh, an unexpected shift of emphasis. 
Imagine, for example, you're at a dinner party with people you don't know. You're sitting next to someone, they say, well, who are you? I'm Stephen. What do you do, Stephen? I write books. Oh, what do you like? Well, I write books about books. And on it goes. And it's all part of the social lubrication that's perfectly what human beings do. It's useful. But if that person were then to sort of suddenly say, but Stephen, who are you really? <laughs> How would you feel? Who are you really? I know all this bullshit about writing books and stuff, but who are you really? It's like that. And that, I think, is what's going on here. Is that, yes, we can know all the Buddhist information about impermanence and that stuff, but, but what is it really? But what's actually going on? And Huai Zhang was speechless. It brought his thinking mind to a stop. And he was just left with that question. You know, well, what is this? Now, I'm not suggesting that one approach is somehow better or worse than another. I feel that what <coughs> we um, inherit in, uh, in our time from Buddhist tradition is a plurality of approaches. And I think that's incredibly rich. We get the minds that have come through the Tibetans, through the Japanese, the Koreans, the Chinese, the Thais, the Burmese, the Sri Lankans, all of which have, have developed approaches to practice that have been effective, obviously, in those cultures. Um, and I think we're fortunate, in many ways, in having exposure to so many. Had we been born, say, in Cambodia, uh, we would really only have come across that form of Buddhist practice. But we're in a strange situation now in our global world where we, are, um, we have access to so many different styles. And that, I think, is going to be one of the factors that will probably determine what, how Buddhism unfolds in, in modernity. It's going to be more pluralistic. Of course, different groups will try to hold on for dear life to the specialness of their approach. But I don't know whether that can really... Uh, be sustained in the sort of world in which we live. So I found for myself that uh, the, 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 the different approaches have been very valuable at different times and they all seem over time to, to come together in a way that crystallizes what, uh, at least in my own case, I find to be of use and value. And in this way we somehow create over time a practice that's suited to our needs rather than a practice that has been authorized by some ecclesiastical body and we take on faith and trust as being the best thing there is since whole week Japati. <laughs> so coming back to this, um, this question, uh, Martin and I can kind of sketch the broad landscape of how we might approach this, but it's up to each one of us uh, to find a way uh, that might allow it to work in our own particular case. There is, I think, something to be said uh, for putting aside one's hesitations and one's, and one's scepticism, perhaps, about this approach and just trying it out. Um, in the monasteries in Korea, um, you know, you, you sit for 12 hours a day for three months at a time. 
just with the question, what is this? Uh, this is, in some senses, almost only a taster uh, in, in, in comparison to that sort of frame in which we were trained. Um, so I think we need to give it the benefit of the doubt and to perhaps put aside some of our, our concerns and just allow us the time, allow ourselves the time and the space uh, to explore this. And again, I emphasize uh, that we need to approach this with a certain humility, a certain uh, gentleness, and to maybe only ask this question when we feel somehow more stable, more still, more focused, less distracted, and just throw it in. Again, paying attention to how we intonate the words. And remembering that actually the words are not that important. The word, sorry, the words are there really to serve as a kind of springboard or trigger that allows a certain feeling or sensation of doubt or perplexity to begin to emerge. And it might be that this doubt and perplexity makes us feel uncomfortable. It's much much easier in a way to, to, to just remain within the safety zone or comfort zone of our own certainties and convictions. And we often don't even notice that until in a still, quiet space we allow it to be questioned. But again, the form within which we do this practice is, as I mentioned already, uh, one of a discipline, a training, a very, um, you know, we have a schedule. All of this provides a kind of crucible in which we can be with that uncertainty, that questioning, in a way that's less liable for it to be, you know, un so unsettling that it becomes intolerable. But again, if it does create anxiety and that becomes counterproductive in the sense that it just makes us feel very un very shaky and uh, confused, then go back to the breath. Go back to the body. Go back to just stilling and focusing your attention. So somehow play with this. Uh, see where it leads you. And also to, to notice how the mind reacts. Um, as was mentioned yesterday, we tend to come up with answers. That's a very typical um, thing that happens, particularly when we're beginning this practice. But over time, that will burn itself out. And you'll become much more interested in the, in the felt quality of inquiry and curiosity and wonder that begins to be made possible. And again, we can't, we can't force this. We can't uh, contrive those feelings. All we can do, really, is create the conditions under which such a sense of curiosity or wonder will be more likely to happen. There's no guarantees that it will. 
that we're you know locked into sets of uh, of feelings and opinions and convictions that are very well established both culturally, socially, perhaps biologically. It's not that easy just to throw them out, and so there's a constant sort of uh, uh, constraint or resistance. <coughs> To this kind of inquiry that's simply part of who we are so it's about learning how to relax learning how to be still learning to be quiet and also allowing that quietness to enable us to be more clear more, more vivid more present with what's going on and in that what does Martine call it Bright, bright, quiet, quiet. Song, song, jock, jock. Which is just another way of saying shamatha and vipassana. Quiet is shamatha, or stillness. Bright is uh, vipassana. That, that's what the words are in Chinese. So shamatha, vipassana, stilling the mind, clarifying, brightening attention, is the context within which we can then inquire in this questioning way. Are there any practical points that you would like to raise at this time? Yeah. Um, I found myself naturally uh, doing more the practice, they're asking for the question when I was experiencing something a bit troubling, because I thought that's then that there is uncertainty, and that's when it seems alive to ask the question, why not and wait for the quietness? Is that wrong? <laughs> um, well, as I said, I think each of us has to learn to negotiate this in our own terms. So there's no right or wrong in that sense. Um, and again, if you go back to the story of the Buddha, um, he wasn't going out on his chariot and then getting still and quiet and saying, hey, what's this cause? No, this question arose in the midst of what may have been a deep existential crisis for this young man. And, you know, I, I think at some level, uh, this sort of practice is almost designed as a way to work with those kinds of rather chaotic and uncomfortable feelings of uncertainty that you describe. Um, but if we don't have a kind of preparation or a sort of a training, it's very difficult actually to, tra to transform that uncertainty, that, that, that anxiety, into a focused kind of meditation. So you can see perhaps why we need the two. We need the discipline in order to be able to take the often considerable energy that is present in such uh, you know, those unsettling experiences and actually focus that. If we don't have the discipline, it will be very difficult to contain. And so I think it's both. If we just work on you know, getting still, getting quiet, um, that might, in a sense, uh, avoid or be used as a, a strategy uh, of uh, somehow distancing ourselves from the question that life is asking with some urgency all the time. Uh, and um, so, again, it's, it's a negotiation. It's a, 
a, a way of um, aligning the map and the territory. Does that answer your question? Thank you. Okay, so we'll give it another crack. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.